You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to another special report here on Legal Talk Network. My name is Alan Pierce. I practice workers' comp law in Salem, Massachusetts. Today's show is being recorded on location at the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group, WILIG, our annual conference at the Bacara Resort in Santa Barbara, California. And joining me today are two guests, Scott Trost and Nate Mudd. Welcome to the show, guys. Before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourselves and the firm that you uh, uh, are members and partners of. Well, we are both partners in the law firm of Mountie, Rakel, Hartley, French, and Mudd. Say that three times fast. Say that three times fast. Our main office is based in St. Louis, but we have offices across the country, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, Edwardsville, Illinois, where Nate uh, has his office. We have an office in Los Angeles where I'm based out of, one up in Portland, one in Oakland. And so we are now currently the largest law firm in the country that exclusively handles mesothelioma cases. It's all we do. And, you know, any of us who practice workers' comp law, we're going to run into clients who have worked on and around asbestos. And, of course, mesothelioma, perhaps you can tell us the patho. Uh, the medica- medical consequences of asbestos exposure. Well, I'll let I'll let Nate uh, handle the medical consequences. And... Well, once someone has been exposed to asbestos, they're at risk of developing an asbestos-related disease. Uh, there's generally a long latency period for the development of an asbestos-related disease, uh, anywhere between 10 years to 50 years. So our, our clients range uh, have a, uh, a quite a range in age. Uh, but as you mentioned to us uh, before we, we started here this morning, uh, if someone w- was a pipe fitter, a, a millwright, a carpenter, uh, just about a- any uh, any trade you can imagine that, that you represent uh, as a workers' compensation attorney, um, there's a good chance that they were also exposed to asbestos, whether they knew it or not. And you mentioned asbestos-related diseases. Mesothelioma is but one, perhaps the most common and deadly, and that's a cancer. It is a cancer. It's a cancer of the lining of the lung, which is called the mesothelial layer. Uh, it, it is not a cancer of the lung itself, uh, it, so it, it is not caused by smoking and, and you know other chemicals. Uh, it's caused only by uh, asbestos, uh, at least in the United States, that is. And, and uh, how does that differ, uh, or what is asbestosis? Is that sort of the generic term for all asbestos-related diseases, or is that an independent entity? Uh, it's an independent ent- entity. You can have mesothelioma without the appearance of asbestosis. It, it generally takes a large amount of asbestos exposure to cause asbestosis. That's a scarring uh, that's caused inside the lung itself. Uh, due to the presence of the asbestos fibers. Uh, Mesothelioma is, is, as we said, a cancer of the mesothelial lining. Uh, Those fibers get out to the mesothelium mesothelium through the lungs. These words are hard to say, Uh, like I'd never said them before. Uh, So so the the asbestos does not stay in the lungs. They they, uh, translocate to the the mesothelial layer, and then you you develop the disease. Right. It's also worth noting, as people have probably picked up when some of the advertising they've seen uh, for lung cancer cases, that uh, asbestos has been linked to other cancers like lung cancer, throat cancer, stomach cancer, colon cancer. And so it's uh, been estimated that a smoker 
who was also around significant amounts of asbestos, is eight times more likely to develop lung cancer as a result of that asbestos exposure than just the smoking alone. And um, that also gets us into the what I think you talked about, uh, the time gap, which I guess the term that we use is the latency period of anywhere from 15 to as much as 50 years. And if we go back 10, 10 20, 30, 40 years, there was a lot more smoking going on than there is today. There was a lot less information about the interrelationship and the exponential increase of probability of disease for smokers and non-smokers. How does that impact the legal causation issues, the standards of proof? If you've got a person with a 30-pack year history of smoking and has maybe not mesothelioma, which is really isolated to asbestos, but has a pulmonary condition that might have asbestos implications? That makes the cases much more more difficult. Uh, our firm has chosen not to pursue those lung cancer cases. Um, that is not an indication that we don't think that those are, are, are valid cases. Uh, they certainly are. Um, the the uh, effects of asbestos and smoking together, uh, as Scott said, uh, uh, greatly increase the risk. Uh, the the proof is is much more difficult. Yeah. And Scott, is, is mesothelioma exclusively related to asbestos exposure, or can you get it independently of any exposure? Well, it's important to, to note that there's been no link between smoking and mesothelioma. So we know that even if someone has smoked all their lives, that does not increase their risk of contracting the cancer of mesothelioma. There's some uh, science that might suggest uh, high doses of radiation in someone's past, but those studies have typically been funded by the industries who produced asbestos, so we're not so sure that that science is reliable. But what is reliable is mesothelioma and asbestos. Uh, a link to, to that uh, mineral is clearly established, and there's no scientist that would deny that uh, if you have mesothelioma at some point in your past, you've been exposed to asbestos. Now, other than remediation uh, workers, are there any new exposures taking place? Is asbestos out there in sufficient quantities that it's continuing to pose a health hazard, or has that been pretty much remedied? It's that's a hard question to answer. I'm sure it's still out there. There, there are products uh, being manufactured in other countries that I'm sure are coming into the United States from, uh, say, Mexico, um, that may still have asbestos. Uh, asbestos was banned in the United States. Uh, that ban was overturned. Um, 40 years ago now, quite a long time ago. Um, however, be, because of all the lawyers that do practice uh, asbestos litigation, most companies, at least in the United States, aren't actively uh, uh, pursuing uh, manufacturing any product that contains uh, asbestos. You might find uh, some workers in the abatement industry. Uh, who certainly are exposed to asbestos. Right. And uh, as we all unfortunately know, uh, many times those uh, guidelines for how asbestos is removed are not being uh, followed by the companies that do that, uh, that abatement work. And so the workers are, uh, in those industries, still being exposed to significant amounts of asbestos. The, the problem has moved primarily, though, overseas. Uh, Russia has now become the largest asbestos manufacturer in the world. Uh, Canada, uh, unfortunately, occupied that spot until just very recently. They finally shut down their last remaining asbestos uh, mine. 
But uh, India, Russia, a lot of your third world countries are going to be faced with uh, large amounts of mesothelioma cases in the next 10 to 50 years. Uh, and so it won't go away, at least worldwide. Yeah, and we know in the United States, asbestos is or has been used in all 50 states, and every state workers' comp jurisdiction might have their own idiosyncratic ways of dealing with it. You have causation issues, you have statutes of limitations issues, you have apportionment issues, you have a workforce that might work for a numer- numerous employers. So aside from the workers' comp implications, what about the liability of the asbestos manufacturers. I know there have been trust funds, there have been uh, class action settlements, there have been pools of money sitting there. Uh, what's, what's going on on the third party end, the enforcing of the civil liability? The civil liability, it seems to change uh, almost yearly, uh, depending uh, uh, some companies claim bankruptcy. Those are the trust funds that you've, uh, you've mentioned before. Uh, we're able to file claims with trust funds on behalf of some of our clients. Uh, a lot like a workers' compensation case where you you might have two guys that worked at the same place at a different rate with the same injury who are going to get vastly differing uh, settlements. Uh, Asbestos litigation is a lot like that. You can have a gentleman who worked for uh, or at a plant uh, that is still solvent, and you can you can get a, a great recovery for that client if that client happened to work at a, at a Johns Manville plant or a, a company that uh, is bankrupt. Um, you're not going to do quite as well for that client. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, today we are seeing quite a few uh, cases of take-home exposures from uh, from workers uh, that may have been exposed at uh, any number of places who brought that asbestos dust home on their clothes you know, and their funny. wives we're, and daughters and yeah. sons. Are- we were talking about, uh, on an, an earlier edition of Special Reports, we had, a, uh, we had a guest that deals with black lung and coal dust, and we had explored the issue of the secondary transmissal to, to family members and spouses. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can actually get somebody such as somebody, uh, a person washing the clothes or dealing with the asbestos fibers uh, be- becoming afflicted. We do see that a lot. Um, while the experts do know how mesotheliomas are caused, uh, they can't describe the exact mechanism and why some people are more prone to develop mesothelioma than others. We've had insulators who have worked around asbestos their entire career who never get sick, uh, but their wives come down with mesothelioma. So uh, that asbestos comes home on the clothes, it gets in their carpet and uh, on their couches, uh, and once it's in there, it never leaves. You have to have a special HEPA filter in order to uh, um, to adequately remove any of the asbestos. And back in the old days, we had those canisters and with bags we bought from uh, from the store, and all all that did was uh, succeed in in spreading the dust out more. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our time. I want to thank Scott Trost and Nate Mudd for joining us. If our listeners have any questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you guys? They could. Uh Look us up online. Uh, there's a, You're going to have to say that firm name again. Well, no, I don't, uh, because okay. they can just go to mesobook.com, M-E-S-O-B-O-O-K.com. Uh, that's one of the websites that we uh, maintain, and it would allow them to immediately find uh, who we uh, go to our list of attorneys, and they'd find both Nate and myself on there and with uh, both phone numbers and email addresses, and they 
feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk to anyone that's dealing with a case like this and see if there's anything we can do to help. And I assume you take referrals from other attorneys because this is over my head. And I've handled some mesothelioma cases, and I know how extraordinarily difficult they can be to prosecute. It is a very complex area. The the amount of, of recovery can vary considerably depending on which firm handles it. Uh, there's a handful of firms that uh, really spend most of their time working on these types of cases, and we would encourage anyone that has a case like this to reach out to ourselves or one of those firms and, and get some uh, more information. Well, thank you guys for joining us. This has been another edition of Special Reports. I'm Alan Pierce. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Alan. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.